0: This morning we're going to dive into the question of why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow suffering? And I think this is a question that we all wrestle with. It's not just a later in life question. It's just a question. I mean, I have two girls, 8 and 11 years old, and they wrestle with this question. When something goes on in their world, when they are sick, they pray. You know, we gather together and they pray, and um, the second we're done praying... You know, they expect it to be done, right? If they cough again after we pray, they're like, Dad, we prayed. I mean, I've spent, I've spent a lot of evenings uh, with my oldest daughter. She's allergic to pretty much any kind of food, and it hurts her stomach when she eats. And so she'll literally be crying and be like, Dad, doesn't God care? Dad, why won't God heal me? God doesn't listen. Why is God letting this go on in my life? And so as I'm sitting there thinking, I wish your mother was in the room to talk to you about this. We talk about this question because we wrestle through it. Some pain is easier to understand than other pain. All pain is not created equal. There is pain that we just do to ourselves, This past week, some friends of ours invited our family to the St. Paul Rodeo, where I witnessed firsthand the truth of the phrase, you mess with the bull, you get the horns. Because we watched bull riding, and we watched guys get on the back of a thousand pounds of angry steak that (laughs) danced all over the place. And, And one guy literally was on for just like three seconds, and as his head went down, the bull's head came up knocked him out cold and you know the clowns just drag him off in the dirt to the side and you know i'm like really this is your job you know but but there's pain that that we do to ourselves and it doesn't have to be bull riding but you're familiar with kind of self-destructive behavior things that you do that you cause your own self-pain and and so i can understand that and then there's also pain because god has given us this wonderful gift of choice and because God has allowed us the gift of choice, the result can be pain. The result can be broken relationships and broken promises and hurts from fathers to sons or mothers to daughters. And, and that pain happens because we don't always make the best choices. But we understand that it's a result of choice. But there's also pain that, that leaves us just scratching our heads. There's this kind of unexplainable pain. When you see a baby that is born with birth defects, you're like, God, really? What's going on? Like, why? Why would you allow that, God? Or somebody that suffers with an illness for their entire life. Or when you see hurricanes or when the tsunami hits and you're like, God, aren't you in charge of these things? There are certain things that just leave us with more questions and less answers. And so we want to talk about that today. Why does God allow pain? And I just want to say, you know, it's easy to kind of stand up here and to to kind of offer advice or cliches, and it's difficult for you to wade through the things that you're going through. And I don't presume to know the depth of the things that you've gone through. And I know that the roads that you have traveled are crazy sometimes. And so I don't want to stand up here and just kind of offer cliches because I know that sometimes well-meaning Christians are like, keep smiling, God's in control. And, and okay, but when you're going through it, you know, Romans 8.28, God's going to work this for good. He's got it. I've heard well-meaning students talk to other students and be like, oh, you're feeling bad? You need to watch this YouTube clip. It's really going to make you feel better. Right? And you're like, oh. So I don't want to just stand up here and, and just kind of offer cliches to you. I want to walk through it with you. Because I believe as Christians we need to learn how to mourn with those who mourn. And we need to be better at grieving with those who grieve. And sometimes we just need to offer the gift of our presence. Job in the Old Testament suffered tremendously, and then he had three friends come to offer their advice, but when they showed up and they saw him, they were silent for seven full days. And as you read the entire story of Job, you understand that during those seven days is when they were at their wisest, <laughs> when they said nothing. And so we want to learn to, to better grieve with those who are grieving, to better mourn with those who mourn. When we tackle these questions like, why does God allow suffering? Now, there's a philosophical side to this question. Some people have used this question to not believe in God. Skeptics have looked at the problem of evil and pain in the world and, and said things like, if, if evil exists, then God does not. And I think this is a hurdle that we can get over. Because if you look at it, you know, evil how do we know what's evil? Well, we know what evil is because we know what good is. We, we wouldn't know that anything was evil if we didn't have anything to compare it to like good. Well, how do we know what good is then? Be- because good isn't just what we feel like is good, because everybody feels different things are good. But we can all kind of agree that there's a standard of good. Well, where did we get that standard of good? Well, we learned it from somebody. Somebody taught it to us, our forefathers. Well, who taught it to them? Well, it went back, it went back, it went back. Well, eventually there had to be somebody to give that standard of good. So if you say evil exists, then you're talking about good. And if you say good exists, then somebody had to give us that good. If there is a moral law, then there has to be a moral law giver. And so we can look at that question of evil and say, no, no, the the question isn't, does God exist? I think that's a hurdle that that we can get over. And, And don't let that question of evil turn you away from God because where would you turn? This past week I read a quote by Chesterton and he said, when belief in God becomes difficult, the tendency is to turn away from him. But in heaven's name, to what? Where would we turn even in asking this question? Because the world would say that there is pain Because of natural selection, because of survival of the fittest, there's pain in the world just because, you know, it's kind of an unfeeling world. There's no design behind it. But we come into this place and we come to God's word to figure out where does that come from? And and we only ask the question because we believe in God. And we only ask the question because we believe that he's good. And so when we believe in God and we believe that he's good, and then we see pain, we're like, Ugh, something's wrong. So it's not necessarily a question of, does God exist? It's a question of purpose. It's a question of why. But I don't think the weight of this question is found in the philosophical. I think the weight of this question is found in the emotional. When trials hit, when pain hits, when you struggle, you don't usually find yourself scratching your head going, well, let's see now. We have evil and we have good, and that means that someone, you you don't get all philosophical, you get emotional, right? Because the pain hits where you live. It hits you in your heart. It hits you what you're going through. It hits you in your relationships, and that's where the weight of the question is. And so we kind of want to leave the philosophical hurdle behind, knowing that there's evidence to that. But we want to talk about the emotional. And as we do, we want to talk about the life of David. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can grab one out of the pew there. It's on page 278. We're going to take just kind of a broad look at the life of David, and we're going to kind of jump in and out of different events in his life. Some of them you're probably familiar with, you've heard the stories before, but a little bit of background to this story is that the nation of Israel has a king. They pleaded to God to have a king, and so God gave them a man named Saul. Now Saul is a guy who isn't really fit to be king necessarily, and so God at at a certain point, has rejected him as king. Saul's kind of out for his own. He's kind of doing his own thing. He's kind of getting the glory for himself. He's not really obeying, and God rejects him as king. And so God says, I'm going to anoint a new king. So the prophet Samuel, God sends him to the house of Jesse. Jesse has a bunch of boys, and God says, Samuel, I want you to go to Jesse's house, and I want you to Anoint the next king. When he appears before you, I will tell you. So this is where we find ourselves in this story. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 6. They arrived together. And then Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's an amazing verse to, to store away as well. And so Jesse calls, you know, the next son forward, and, and Samuel's like, that's the guy. And God's like, nope. And then the next guy, and he's like, Samuel's like, oh, that's got to be him. And God says, nope. And eventually, all these sons parade before Samuel. And finally, verse 11, he has to ask Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. David anointed the next king of Israel. And so if we're looking at this story, we're going, what's going through David's mind? He just gets anointed, and and Samuel's there, and Samuel's the prophet of God. It's kind of a big deal. But I'm sure David is asking things like, isn't there already a king? When do I start? Where's my secret service? Can you fill me in a little bit here, Samuel? Because he, he knows that it's a big deal. And so, kind of put yourself in on this story just a little bit. Because you are chosen by God. And God has promised you a hope and a future. And God has promised you big things. So, you have this kind of expectancy and you're waiting. And David knows that this big promise was given to him that he is going to be the king. And then you know what Samuel does? Samuel leaves. And you know what David does? David goes back to the sheep. Right? What's, what's he doing? You know, does he change his Facebook status? Just anointed king. So far, so good. Not much has changed. What's he thinking with this big promise? So he's out watching the sheep. In the next chapter of, of 1 Samuel, we see that his dad sends him to his older brothers. His older brothers are, are fighting against the Philistines, against the giant Goliath, and David's watching the sheep, next king, watching the sheep. And so his dad's like, I want you to take some grain and some cheese to the boys and uh, go see what's going on. So his dad sends him, and he goes, and he sees this giant there, and the giant's kind of cursing the God of the Israelites. And, And David stands up before Goliath, no armor. And he says to Goliath, verse 45, This young guy standing up before this giant and saying, listen, it's not me. It's God. And I know that he, God was just shaping him as he's watching the sheep. And, and David's just following God and making it happen. And it's amazing. And this is this time of victory in his life. And it's the turning point in this battle. And it gives them victory. The next king. And then in chapter 18... We find David before Saul and uh, he's playing his harp. End of verse 10 there it says, he was playing his harp as he usually did and Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David escaped. Chapter 19 we get the same story. David's playing his harp and Saul's got a spear and he says again, I'm just going to drive this through David and into the wall. And so I'm reading this, and well, I'm thinking, first of all, my kids have harmonicas that they play all the time, and I've wanted to, no, not, never throw anything at the children, just the harmonicas. Saul tries to pin him to the wall, twice, tries to kill him with a spear. A third time in chapter 19, verse 11, it says, Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But David's wife warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So David's wife lets him out the window, and he has to run away and escape, and and Saul's men come to kill him, and and his wife says, he's not feeling well. (laughs) And they're like, okay, we'll come back tomorrow, (laughs) which they did, they they left, they went back to Saul. He's sick, we can't kill him, he's sick. Um... (laughs) So Saul's like, well, go back and kill him. So the, you know, the army men go back and try and kill David. And, and he's, he's fleeing. He's running for his life. Three attempts made on his life by the current king. And you know where he runs to? He runs to Samuel. And he runs to Samuel. And I just picture this conversation of like, Samuel, what's going on? Samuel, you anointed me king. Samuel, this promise that I would be king... And, and now I'm running for my life. This isn't exactly how I pictured the story going. He's throwing spears at me. He's got the army looking for me everywhere, trying to kill me. I'm running around and hiding. Samuel, what's going on? And during this time, David's writing some of the psalms. And one of the psalms that he wrote while he was fleeing Saul is Psalm 13. And not just before Samuel, but before God, David asks some difficult questions. And he says this, verse one, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. God, how how long do I have to wait? How long do I have to run around and hide? How long do I have to fear for my life? God, how come you're not answering me? And so David writes this psalm of lament, this psalm of, of anger and grief and sorrow. You see, there's all kinds of Psalms in the Bible. There's Psalms that teach, and there's Psalms that praise, and there's Psalms of wisdom. And there's Psalms that they used for the festivals coming and going from, from the major festivals that they would celebrate. But the largest category of Psalms in the Bible are Psalms of Lament. There are 150 Psalms, 67 of them are Psalms of Lament. Our psalms where David and other authors go before God and just question him and pour out their hearts to him and ask him about his fairness and ask him about his goodness and ask questions like how long And the more that I read these psalms the more that I'm convinced that this is the first step in us answering the question why does God allow suffering this, this lamenting is just a step in this process of kind of figuring this out. Parents, do you want your kids always coming to you and just saying, great job, you're the best? <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> Does that always happen? What, what happens when your kids are struggling with something? What happens when they see that something's not fair? What happens when they're angry? Do you just want to say this to them? Listen, I just, you really need to just bottle that up. Don't talk about that to me. You just keep that to yourself. All right, go to your room. Now, parents, you don't say that to your kids. When your kids feel like there's injustice going on, and your kids know injustice, children know what's fair, right? They use the word fair a lot. They know that word, but, but you want them to come to you And to talk about it. And even if it's against you, you want them to pour it out. And you want to be able to, as a parent, say, I'm sorry. And, And I feel for you. And I've walked that road that you're walking. As a matter of fact, I've walked it longer than you've walked it. And so I have a different perspective than you have. Parents, you want your kids to come to you and share that. God wants us to come to him and share those things that are on our heart. Lamenting is, is not a loss of faith. To lament is a path to a deeper faith. The throne of God isn't just a place that you come and offer praise. The throne of God is a, com- is a place to come and offer everything that's in you. I had lunch with a student this past week, a, a great guy, college student. And he said, You know what? I just kind of know that God's always right. And you know what? That makes him distant and unapproachable in my mind. And you know what? There's some truth there. That sometimes if if we just go to the throne just to be like, God, you're right, I think eventually you're going to stop going. God wants us to come and to pour it out to him as this path to a deeper faith. Most of you know Vincent van Gogh as a painter, Van Gogh didn't start his life wanting to be a painter. He started his life wanting to be a pastor. His father was a pastor, and he wanted to be a pastor as well, but he continued to fail the theological entrance exam. And he he couldn't make it. He couldn't be a pastor. So what he did instead was he signed on at a church as kind of their neighborhood outreach pastor. Pastor. He didn't have to be the lead guy, so he went to this place in Belgium, this coal mining community, and he spent three winter months there, and he decided that he was going to be just like Jesus, and he was going to live missionally, and he was going to give everything he had away. And so paycheck after paycheck disappeared, and just to the endless need of these coal miners and their families. As a matter of fact, he did so well at this that he became known as the Christ of the coal mines. But after three months, the head of the church called him in and said, what you're doing is extravagant, what you're doing we don't agree with, and dismissed him from the church. You can't work here anymore. And that began a separation in Van Gogh's life. It began a separation of him and church, but more importantly, it began a separation in his life from him and Jesus. Jesus. And he couldn't just reconcile that in his own heart and in his own world. And he made up his mind, I will not grieve anymore. I will not shed tears anymore. I will not pour out to anybody anymore because nobody hears it. Nobody's going to listen to that. I'm just going to work hard at what I do. And so towards the end of his career, one of the last paintings that he painted was a painting of a church church. Critics noticed right away a couple things about this painting. One is that there was a path that split and divided and went around the church. And they also noticed that there's no door to the church. That he painted a church that was inaccessible. He painted a church that you just couldn't get on the inside of. And you also notice that He painted a church that's dark on the inside. That even if you could get inside, there'd be nobody there to hear you. There'd be nobody there to listen. I want to tell you that we get to gather in this place to pour out our hearts to God. In this community, to pour out our hearts to Him with the understanding that God listens. God wants us to do that, to come before him in that way. It's good for us. Lament can be that missing door into a relationship with a Savior who has a depth of compassion for us that we can't even imagine. And as you look at these psalms, and as I've read through these psalms, there's a pattern that emerges, and, and the first part of that is just verbalizing. The laments are just a series of, of psalms where people are angry and hurt and talk to God about his inaction or his injustice and, and just getting it all out on the table. Just verbalizing all this within you. But the next step in this pattern is this submission to God. That after you verbalize it, there's this understanding of God. I've just poured all this out on you, but I understand that you are God and I'm not. And so I submit to you. And God, I understand that you created all of this and I didn't. And God, I understand that your ways are here and my ways are here. That your ways are higher than my ways and I submit to you. And the third step in the pattern as you read these Psalms is a release that release that allows us to worship. I read this past week that the proper setting of praise is a lament resolved. The proper setting of praise is a lament resolved where you can go to the Father. You can go to your Savior and release those. You know, Jesus didn't come just to take our sins. Isaiah 53 says that he came to take our sorrows our pains, our griefs as well. And so we release those to him. I want to continue on for just a minute in the life of David, understanding that David had moments of victory. David had moments of defeat. David had moments in his world that stuff happened bad because David made some poor decisions. And David had moments in his world that stuff happened bad that he had nothing to do with. And he had a lot of ups and downs and victories and defeats. In chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, David's fleeing Saul still. And he flees to this neighboring kingdom. And he's worried that the king there, who understands that David is a powerful young man, he's worried that the king will want to kill him. So verse 13 says, he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the door of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. And I read that and I go, that's the next king? And the king who's there actually says, look at this man, he's insane. Why do you bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here? Probably not a high point. In David's life. Chapter 24, David is fleeing from Saul. And at this point, he's hiding out in caves. He happens to be in a particular cave. Verse 3 it says Saul comes in. Saul goes in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. And the men said this. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. So David's been running from Saul. And he's had spears hurled at him. And he's had people chase him and try and kill him. And the next king is living in the caves, hiding with a band of men. And you get to this point Where he has the ability to kind of take his future into his own hands. And the people around him are saying, David, this is right. This is good. And they're not only saying that, but they're saying, this is what God wants you to do. And this is a tremendous moment in the story of David because he knows the promise and he knows where he should be. And he knows that he has been anointed and he's been called for this task but it hasn't happened, and it looks completely different than what he thought it would look like, and so he has the opportunity to take it into his own hands, and I know that in our own stories, that happens sometimes. In our own stories, there are times when you're like, okay, God, you promised this. You promised to prosper me, but I'm really not getting the promotion waiting on you, so I'm going to take this into my own hands. God, you promised me happiness in this relationship, but you're really not working it out for me, so I'm going to have to manipulate the situation a little bit to make it work for me. I mean, God, you promised it. I'm just helping you out a little bit. And so in these weak moments, we're tempted to cheat. We're tempted to manipulate. We're tempted to take things into our own hands and to push God's agenda. David does something amazing. He really he cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, and even then it says he's conscious stricken. And he says to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. God, I'm sorry. I almost took things into my own hands, but I trust in you and your promise. When David finally gets to the throne, God speaks to him. And God says this, I took you, this is 2 Samuel chapter seven, starting in verse eight. He says, I took you from the pasture, From tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. Did you hear that part in there? He says, I have been with you wherever you have gone. When you defeated Goliath, I was with you. But when the spears were coming your way, I was with you. When you're at the gate, scratching it, I was with you. When you're hiding out in the caves, I was with you. I was there with you in those times. See, what happens is we evaluate the presence of God in our lives, and we evaluate the concern of God for us by how well he meets our expectations. Do you understand that? We evaluate his presence and his concern by how well he meets our expectations. We judge the faithfulness of God by how well he stacks up our agenda over here. Right? See, we have a way that we want our life to look. And the way that we want our life to look, somehow we bought into this idea that our life should be pain-free, that we, we shouldn't have pain and suffering in our lives. That's part of our agenda. Our agenda is that we should have the perfect marriage, that we should have the perfect children, that we should make the sports team, that we should get invited to the right parties, that the parking place should always be open in front of that store. God, that's how I know you care for me. God, if you really want me there. And when when God doesn't meet our agenda, we question his faithfulness. We question his goodness we question his presence in our lives. But you know what? God takes us to places that we would never go on our own. And God takes us to places that are totally unexpected. And we look at that and we say, God, your plan is way off. But you know what? That isn't the case all the time. It's not that God's plan is off. It's just that God's working in our lives. And God's taken us to a place that we wouldn't have gone on our own. And so don't judge his faithfulness or his presence or his care for us. Don't judge that by your own agenda. See, just like David, we're chosen. We're royal. First Peter chapter 2 Verse 9 says that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so just like David, you have been called, and you are royal, and you are chosen by a good God, and a faithful God, and a trustworthy God, but it's not always going to look the way that you think it's going to look, and it's not always going to be pain-free and you're not always going to steer around those, those spots of suffering and of trial. So why does God allow suffering to happen? Well, we talked about choice and we talked about sin, but God allows suffering and God allows trials and God allows pain to make us more like Jesus, who also endured who also walked the path that we walk. And God allows us to go through those things to take us to places that we would never go on our own. And God allows us to walk through these things and he is present with us as we do to shape us and to mold us. The first chapter of James says, consider it pure joy when you encounter trials and tribulations because you know that That testing will produce perseverance, and that perseverance will work in you to help make you more complete. In the first chapter of 1 Peter, God says that these things come so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, may be proved genuine. And so these things happen in your life oftentimes to shape you and to mold you. I read a quote this past week from Malcolm Muggeridge, and he says this. It's going to be up on the screen. He says, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. In other words, if it ever were to be possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence by means of some drug or other medical mumbo-jumbo, the result would not be to make life delectable, but to make it too banal or trivial to be endurable. He goes on to say in this quote, This, of course, is what the cross signifies. And it is the cross more than anything else that has called me to Jesus Christ that these things have happened to shape me. And I see that Jesus walked through it and so I'm going to walk through it. And you know what? Also there's this understanding too that there are gonna be some things in your world that never get explained. There are gonna be some pains and some hurts where you're going to have to live with the mystery. That the question that you ask of why Might never get answered. Job, when he was suffering, asked God question after question after question. And then when God finally comes and answers Job in the Old Testament, and it's the longest recorded speech of God that we have in the entire Bible, God does not answer a single one of Job's questions. Not one. As a matter of fact, he questions Job, and you know where Job lands at the end? Job lands in, you're God, I'm not, and I will worship you. You know, back to those cliches that we talked about in the beginning. They're true. God is in control. God is working these things for good. And those kind of sink in, and those have a, a depth of understanding that you get only from walking through these things. And so we need to remember how the lament psalms end This one that I read you, Psalm 13, where David's asking, how long? God, have you forgotten me? How come you're hiding from me? Why won't you answer me? Here's how it ends, Psalm 13, verse 5 and 6. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good And so I want to remind you and I want to assure you that you can trust God. That you can trust that he loves you unfailingly. And that you can trust that he is good. And so we lament as the first part of that process and we submit and we release. And we lament and we say, and yet I trust you. God loves you unfailingly, and he is good.